सहनावतु सहनौ भुनक्तु सह वीर करवाह तेजस्वीनावधीतमस्तुमाषा पहै ओ शाति 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 So we are studying the Kato Upanishad, and we have entered the second chapter, the first section of the second chapter. Remember the structure of the text: uh, two chapters, and then each chapter has three sections. So we have entered the first section of the first valli of the second chapter. Chapters are called adhyaya. The sections are called valli. And we read last time. First of all, we read. that one great obstacle to spiritual life is exteriorization this constantly flowing outwards um, that mantra was there, the first mantra of this section paranchi khani vektrinat swayambhu it's as if there is a manufacturing defect in us we continuously easily tend to flow outwards into objects and it takes a special effort to stop that and turn inwards then the second mantra said that um, the difference between a spiritual seeker and a worldly person is a worldly person spends all time and energy and lifetimes chasing objects in the world and thus what's the problem with that the it falls into the widespread net of death mrityoryanti vitatasya pasham the widespread net of death that means lifetime after lifetime the same repetitive patterns continue whereas the enlightened the spiritual seeker the term used always is dhira the word dhira is there in most indian languages generally means person of strong will a person who is patient um strong um steady here it's a like a dedicated spiritual seeker who is able to turn inwards having realized the self within attains immortality and does not want anything in this world anymore so the question is then how do we know that that brahman that atman that real self by knowing which one transcends worldliness one transcends this continuous cycle of birth and death so how do we do that now we come to the third and the fourth mantras this third and fourth mantras are very powerful they are they are the heart of um you know the advaita vedanta that uh, the question which nachiketa had asked show me that that the third question which nachiketa had asked that reality which will take me beyond death uh, the, the question about the self the eternal self atman brahman that question is being answered it was answered earlier of course with the analogy of the chariot that was explained now it's being pointed out and here the pointing out these two mantras third and fourth are pointing out directly pointing to the real self we are expected to catch it um so third and fourth mantras very direct language so the answer to the original question third question of nachiketa is being given here yena roopam rasam gandham shabdan sparshanscha maithunan etenaiva bijanati kimatra parishishyate etadvaitat 
This is the third mantra. What does it mean? I'm giving the translation from Swami Gambhirananda What remains here unknowable to this self, through which very self people perceive color, taste, smell, sound, touch, and sexual pleasure. This indeed is that, is that self which was asked for by Nachiketa. So, what he has said here is, use Shankara's commentary here. Yena, by which, because of which, due to whose presence? What is he talking about? Consciousness, the self. We see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch. All kinds of experiences in life are because of that. And other than that, there's nothing else. Everything is comprehended by that. Everything is revealed to that. Everything exists in that. Nothing is left over when you know that. And that's you. That's your real nature. That is my uh, innermost nature. What is he saying here is um, he's pointing to our real self. And how is he pointing to a real self? The question is, how do I know the Atman? How do I realize that I am, you know, the Chidananda, Rupa, Shivoham, of the nature of Shiva, I'm consciousness, I'm bliss. How do I know that? Um, the answer given by Yama in this very direct pointing is, he points to our experience. Which experience? Every experience. Uh, all experiences that we are, uh, having every experience that we have, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, every in every experience, what is going on there? See, it has been said that in every experience we are flowing outwards. And here Yama says, instead of flowing outwards through every experience, in every experience the self, the Atman is revealed to us. But we don't see that. Why don't we see that? Because we are, we are obsessed with, we are flowing outwards to the contents of the experience. In Sanskrit, vishaya. So, when uh, I eat a cookie, so I am um, absorbed in the taste of the cookie and I touch the texture of the cookie. The tongue gets the flavor of the cookie. The nose get, gets the smell, uh, the fragrance of the cookie. And the mind thinks about it and says it's very nice and it was uh, brings out memory uh, that it's like that cookie which I had at that time, and so on. So we are, it's all our senses and the mind is engaged with the object, the cookie. But the whole experience is being made possible because you are conscious, you are aware. It is that awareness which is making this experience possible. We do not attend to that awareness. We are attentive of the objects of awareness, but not to the awareness itself. And this mantra is pointing us back at awareness. What is it saying? It's saying that notice you are aware all the time. When we, as it says, when you see something, you're aware. Um, let me make it even more detailed. Whatever we see is because of the eyes. When you see a person, it's because of the eyes you're able to see. 
you see a movie or television program, it's because of the eyes that you're able to see. You see the sky, it's because of the eyes. You see the earth, it's because of the eyes. See a human being, see an animal or a plant, because of the eyes. Read a book, it's because of the eyes. Eyes are a constant in everything that we see. So the eyes are one and constant there because of that. But the eyes are not a factor when you hear something. That's because of the ears. But one thing is common between all the things that you see and all the things that you hear, that is awareness. Awareness is constant. Awareness is there in all the things. Because of that awareness, we are able to have the experience of seeing various things. We're able to have the experience of hearing various things. As he says, rupam, rasam, gandham, taste of various kinds, all because of awareness. Every experience that we have, sensory experience, is all because of the presence of awareness, is made possible by awareness. Um, the objects are different. The senses are different. The eyes are the sense of seeing. Ears are the sense of hearing. Tongue is the sense of taste. But awareness is constant and the same. It's the same awareness behind all of them. Not only that, not only the sensory perceptions, but also internal, um, the mind. What's the difference between internal and external? External is my senses are in contact with something. Eyes are in contact with forms, ears in contact with sound and so on. Um, but the mind is not directly in contact with anything else. The mind is, um, is entirely internal. The mind can contact the external world only through the senses. But otherwise, the mind itself has memories, has thoughts, has feelings. The mind itself has a sense of ego. I'm using the word mind in a general sense for our internal experience. Mind itself has, has intellect, uh, which can comprehend, which can understand. But in all of these cases, awareness is constant. Whether you're remembering something to in order to have the experience of remembering or not being able to remember, in both cases, awareness is what reveals memories or the absence of memories. In order to feel something, love, uh, hate, disgust, desire, awareness has to be there. Without awareness, none of these are possible. Restless mind, awareness reveals it. Peaceful mind, awareness reveals it. So all our internal experiences, the mental experiences also are due to awareness. Not only this, waking, dreaming and deep sleep, awareness is constant in all of them. Now, the point he's making here is awareness is distinct from all the objects of awareness. The external world, the eyes are distinct from the external world. But the Eyes also are distinct from the mind, which is thinking about what, it, what, what is seen through the eyes. And the mind is distinct from consciousness, which illumines the mind. So consciousness is distinct from all its objects, from the mind, from the senses, from the external world. Consciousness is distinct. It's separate. It's not one of those things. Everything is an object to consciousness. But consciousness is not an object. Consciousness is constant. Everything else is changing. It is due to consciousness that we have all the experiences which we call life. Without consciousness, no kind of experience is possible. And it's only due to consciousness. All those things are present, then only consciousness, then, then we get these experiences, but without consciousness, no experience is possible. 
consciousness is free of any modification any change so changes are in the world changes are there in the body the body is born it ages it sickens um, becomes healthy or sick and then it dies consciousness reveals all this and gives you various experiences of health of sickness of aging and even one day death but you that consciousness is constant consciousness doesn't get sick consciousness doesn't age consciousness doesn't die this whole idea of consciousness dying is uh, we have made a huge assumption already that consciousness is generated by the body brain and nervous system so when brain and nervous system dies consciousness will die but then you have to prove that and that's very interesting that today that is the huge and the hot question in consciousness studies we are unable to prove how brain if at all brain generates consciousness and vedanta says brain does not generate consciousness in fact the point that vedanta wants to make is that um, consciousness is not produced by the brain uh, it is not part of the body mind what is part of the body brain nervous system liver kidneys heart um, hands and feet and tummy and head these are parts of the body external internal parts of the body what's part of the mind thoughts feelings emotions ideas memories ego these are all parts of the mind none of them is conscious by themselves and consciousness is none of these parts it reveals all of this and is is separate from all of them consciousness is not produced by the brain it is not part of the body mind system um but it is manifest in the body mind system so our brain body uh, senses are all illumined by consciousness and illumined by consciousness it reveals everything gives us all these experiences when the body will die when the body dies then consciousness no longer will be manifest in this body mind system that means those who know the terminology of reflected consciousness chidabhasa the the mind will be unable to hold on to chidabhasa the brain will be unable to support the mind the brain which is in a dead body will die it will be unable to support the mind so the mind leaves this body that is the subtle body it leaves this body and goes to other worlds so without that um awareness will not be manifest in the body but with the death of the body awareness is not dead consciousness is not dead consciousness continues just not manifest just like if you have a bulb electricity is manifest as light there but if the bulb is fused then light will not be there doesn't mean that electricity has gone up it's just that the bulb is unable to utilize that electricity to generate light similarly consciousness remains in unmanifest form everywhere uh, but it's manifest in the living body and brain and where the mind is present in the presence of the mind consciousness is manifest this consciousness does not have any problems um this consciousness does not have any problems physical problems at the level of the body mental problems emotional problems at the level of the mind the consciousness is a witness to all of them uh, and illumines all of that and gives us all those experiences problems physical problems illness experiences mental problems and like unhappiness depression and all of that those experiences are all possible because of the presence of consciousness consciousness is free of all of that so this is what he wants to point to and this consciousness is you at present we are not aware of that 
we think of ourselves as this bundle of body and mind. This body, I am this body. And yes, I admit that is the mind. And if you force me to talk about consciousness, awareness, I will say, yes, in the mind, some consciousness is there, some awareness is there. So body, mind, consciousness, a bundle is what we are. That's what we normally think without uh, examination. Upon examination, I realize my essential nature is awareness. On that, you have a layer of the mind. On that, you have a layer of the body. And through the body-mind layer, I experience the world. Um, Vedanta, Yama wants Nachiketa to shift his identification from the Nachiketa body-mind, from the Nachiketa personality to awareness. From the perspective of awareness, you see that you are ever free of the body-mind. The appearance and disappearance of the body-mind, the birth and death of the body-mind, appearances and disappearances in the mind, thoughts and feelings, these come and go, consciousness is ever illumining them and giving us various experiences. So if you look at the mantra itself, yena, by which, by which means, by which consciousness, rupam, rasam, gandham, forms are seen. Rasam, so the, he uses the word, bijanati, sees. Rasam is, is not that special preparation, you know, the hot spicy drink. Uh, so rasam, here is taste. Vijanati, rasam vijanati, uh, experiences. Gandham, fragrance. Vijanati, experiences, knows it, experiences. Shabdan, sound, speech, music. Vijanati, experiences. Uh, sparshan, touch. All kinds of touch, warmth, pressure, all of that, whatever you get with the tactile sense. Experiences, vijanati. And maitunan. Uh, so mituna means pair. When two things come together, there's an experience. And directly it refers to sexual experience, but uh, all kinds of pairs, subject, object coming together. So you, the subject, with the help of the eyes, and you form a pair with form. You, the subject, with the help of the tongue, you form a pair with taste. So those are also all experiences of pairs, mituna. But of course, specifically, it refers to um, uh, sexual experience. See, all experiences are possible because of that consciousness. Vijanati. And then it says, Kimatra Parishishyati. What remains um, over? Everything is in this consciousness. Everything is experienced by this consciousness. Nothing else is there at all. Everything is exhausted when you talk about consciousness and its contents. A question might be there, is everything in consciousness? Uh, there are so many things which are not in consciousness. So right now, um, I mean, suppose somebody says, in a far away galaxy, there might be a, you know, a planet. There not only might be, there are planets, but we don't know anything about them. All of us human beings have no idea about what is there in that planet. How can you say it is in consciousness? And how, to, how can you say it's completely outside our consciousness? No, here a crucial difference has to be understood between consciousness or awareness on one side and knowledge. All things are in either known or unknown. Everything in this universe can be neatly divided into what you know or what we know and what we do not know, individually and collectively. Why even go out to a far off planet? Right now, what is behind me, um, you maybe you are able to see. I can't see. So that is unknown to me. 
But what Vedanta wants to say is that there is a difference between knowledge and consciousness. Things may be in your knowledge or things may be outside your knowledge. So we, that which is in the knowledge is called known. That which is outside your knowledge, vast ocean of things which are outside your knowledge, that is called unknown. But both known and unknown are in your awareness. See, we are constantly aware of that there is so much outside that I don't know. I only know a little bit. Right now, I am seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, this much, thinking about a few things. That's the narrow band of my knowledge. But I am aware, outside the narrow band of my knowledge, there is a vast world there. In this room, in this building, outside the building, in Manhattan, outside Manhattan, beyond the planet Earth, there is this vast unknown. And that is present in my awareness as the vast unknown. Everything can be divided into the known and the unknown. And in, as the known and the unknown is a fact of our consciousness. This is a subtle point, not very difficult, but we often don't um, think about it that way. We mix up awareness and, and knowledge. Uh, awareness and knowledge are not the same. Awareness plus mind plus some instrument of knowledge like this, the eyes or the ears and then the object, then it will give, give us knowledge. See, awareness plus mind, awareness or consciousness plus mind plus the eyes plus a form, then I have knowledge of some forms. I am seeing awareness plus mind plus the ears plus some sound. Then I have knowledge of sound. I am hearing awareness plus mind plus having read a book of science, now I have knowledge of science. So these are now coming into my zone of knowledge. From where are they coming? From the zone of ignorance or unknowing. So knowing and unknowing, however, both are in awareness. Because that was unknown to me. I was aware that there is something unknown to me. Now I'm aware that unknown thing is known to me. But I, it was known as the, uh, it was still in consciousness as the unknown. To make it even more clear, let me give you a powerful example. In our dreams, suppose, you know, in your dreams, uh, you meet a friend. And so you're talking to this friend, you're happy to see the friend. In the dreams, it is all, always presumed that there is a world outside. In your dreams, you never think. Oh, it's a dream. Therefore, only I am present and the present and the friend is present and this little room outside the room is blank. Nothing else is there. No, we automatically feel there is a world. In that world, there is this room. And in this room, my friend has come to meet me. That's what we feel. And that entire external world, I'm able to see my friend and talk to my friend. But that entire external world is, remains as unknown to me. Yet, when we wake up, what happens? We realized the whole thing was a dream and what we knew in that dream, that room and that friend and that talking to the friend was known and the whole external world was unknown. The whole thing as known and unknown was present in the dreamer's mind. Is that not so? Exactly like that Advaita Vedanta claims right now in you the awareness, a tiny slice of this world is present as the known world which you are directly seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking about, huh? understanding, remembering, forgetting. That's the known part. But also, in your awareness, the rest of the world is present as unknown. And, but the whole, when you talk about a world, now let me put it this way, when we talk about a world, 
when we think about our world, when we at all consider our world or universe, it's only in awareness that we do so. It's not, it's impossible to step out of awareness. So this is what he's saying. Kimatra Parishishyate, what is left over? And then he says, Etadvaitat, this is that. This is what? This is what you had asked for, Nachiketa. You had asked, tell me about that which is beyond death, the secret of death, uh, beyond the dharma and adharma, uh, be, uh, so beyond cause and effect. Uh, tell me that. And he says, this is that. This is the self. It is you. It is your real nature. And this has to be realized. Shankara here, he raises a question in his commentary, an important question. Um, the questionnaire asks, hey, wait a minute, stop. And they say here, rain on your parade. Before you go so far, why are you saying that there is something apart from body and mind um, which knows everything, reveals everything, illumines everything, this consciousness, awareness? Why not just say, I, this fellow, this body mind, I am the knower and these are the things which I know. That's common sense. What is he asking here? Body mind is the knower. And it knows the external world. And maybe the mind can know its own thoughts also. That's it. That's a common sense way of looking at it. Why are you talking about some other thing called awareness, consciousness? Huh? Now the question asked by the questioner is a very important question. And the answer is stunning. That coming from Shankaracharya 1500 years ago, 1400 years ago, uh, it is directly relevant today. What was the question? Is it relevant to the age of AI and smart, um, you know, smart machines? What is the question? Nanu naivam prasiddhi lokasya atmana dehadi vilakshanena aham vijanamiti. Look, I have this doubt. It's not common sense in this world that there, beyond this body and mind, there is some self, some consciousness other than this, you know, not, as you are saying, not produced by the brain, uh, exists without the body and mind, using the body and mind, it is experiencing everything. We don't normally think about it that way. That's not prasiddham, it's, it's not well known. It's not, that's not a commonly accepted concept. Of course, it's not a commonly accepted concept, that otherwise you wouldn't need Vedanta. But he's suggesting a better alternative. The questionnaire, isn't it a, rather shouldn't we say Dehadi Sanghato Aham Vijanami to Sarvo Loko Abagachati? I, this combination, this bundle of body and mind, I know. This body mind is the one which sees and hears and smells and tastes and touches. It is this body mind which is thinking and desiring, loving and hating. This is this is the, this is common sense. Why think, talk about anything else? And Shankara's answer here is stunning. He says, no. Objects, this body-mind is an object. Objects neither know themselves nor know anything else. Anything which is an object. It cannot know itself and it cannot know anything else. First of all, it cannot know itself. There is a well-known principle in philosophy. It is the that reflexivity is not, self-reflexivity is not allowed. That means um, like water cannot wet itself, um, then uh, knife cannot cut itself, you cannot stand on your own shoulders, like that. Thing cannot operate on itself. So an object cannot know itself directly. 
Um, and there is no object that knows other objects. Okay, so what? But this body is an object. How can you say this body knows other bodies? Shankaracharya is even more blunt here. Body is an object and you're saying the body knows um, forms and sounds and smells and touch. Yeah, so what's wrong? Form, sound, smell, taste, touch, they're objects. The body is also an object. Basically, how, what do we know about this, this body? We can see it, we can touch it, we can smell it, we can taste it, we can feel it. So this body is also form, sound, smell, taste, touch for us. Are you saying that forms, sounds, smells and touches can see other forms, can experience other forms, sounds, smells and touches? Can one touch experience another touch? Can one seeing experience another seeing? No, that's ridiculous. If that were so, then Shankaracharya's crucial argument, which holds much greater force today. If that were so, then let external forms, sounds, smells and touches uh, experience other forms, sounds, smells and touches. That doesn't happen. What he means here is so vivid today. Today we actually have machines which uh, have sensors, which uh, not only have sensors, they have uh, computers and, um, you know, the computers with capacity for decision making with huge memories and so on and so forth, which can simulate our senses, which can simulate our mind also. Such machines are available now. In the airport, there's a tap and I put my hand under the tap and water started flowing. And that's the simplest thing. That means there's a sensor, there's, and the, but the whole thing is uh, understandable in terms of a little bit of uh, electronics and uh, mechanics and plumbing. Uh, there is no consciousness involved there anyway. Nobody would say that. And exactly the same principle applies to the most sophisticated self-driving car, Google self-driving car. Exactly the same principle applies to the most sophisticated computers running AI programs. And in no point, nowhere, is there any kind of awareness involved or consciousness involved. Yet, without that awareness, without that consciousness, look at what they're doing. I put my hand there and the tap is giving me water. That, you might say, that's silly, Swami. But if you look at some of the most dramatic things which are happening in Silicon Valley, a car is driving just like you would drive your car. Who is there? Nobody. Computer is there. Computer is driving it. It, 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 can, it has visual sensors, just like our eyes. It has auditory, there is radar. There are other senses which we don't have beyond our five senses. It has a little bit of radar or infrared, things like that. It's there. It's got multiple sensors it has got. Not only that, that car has got extraordinary decision-making pattern recognition capacities. It has got huge amounts of memory, which our ordinary poor human memory cannot match. All of those things are there. All the faculties which we were proud of as human beings, you know, only living beings, human beings have minds. But now a computer has a mind. Um, so maybe in some senses more powerful than our minds. Not only these computers can make decisions, they are also creative. They are painting now. They are writing short stories, sometimes rubbish, but sure, they are writing. And yet, yet, this is the crucial point. At no point, even the most sophisticated AI program is conscious. Nobody is claiming that. In fact, um, the engineers who develop it, they will say, no, there is no, we have not written any program for consciousness. There's nothing there. We don't even understand what it is to be conscious. 
So what I mean to say is, all the faculties of body mind are being replicated by these machines. And yet, as the Upanishad says, they don't have, you know, with sensors also, they don't have the experience, the first person experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, none of that is present. That is present only because of consciousness. That consciousness being present, all the experiences of life become available. That consciousness being absent uh, uh, in those machines, you can have all the activities going on, but no experience at all. If you ask, what does it feel like to drive a car? You will answer, it feels like this, it feels good, I, I like driving a car. If you ask the Google car, what does it feel like to drive a car? Nothing. It will not know how to answer you because it has no feeling of <laughs> driving a car. There's nothing or nobody there to feel anything there. So this is a crucial thing. It shows that not only external things are objects, but mind is also an object. That is the argument which I'm trying to make. Um, we, what was the question? The mind can see. Body mind can experience other things. Why are you saying consciousness is necessary? Now I'm showing you modern technology in Silicon Valley is showing you there are bodies like the body of the Google car and there is a mind of a certain kind which is the, um, the computer computational capacity of the, um, the machines, the processors involved there and the programming there. And yet without consciousness, there is no experience at all. All processes of sensors are going on without any first person experience, without the technical term philosophers use is qualia, first person subjective experiences. Nothing is present there. Uh, so consciousness makes experience possible. No consciousness, no experience. Uh, so the very feeling of life itself, not possible without consciousness. This is Shankaracharya's very, very powerful uh, answer, which becomes more relevant now. They didn't have all those smart machines at that time. Um, because they, at that time they could argue that uh, it is a special capacity of the mind. You know, the mind can think, the mind can remember, mind can uh, take decisions, mind has a, a memory, um, and ordinary objects don't have these capacities. Therefore, the mind is the knower. Now we can say, here are objects, here are machines with memory, with decision-taking capacity, um, with sensors, and yet they have no consciousness. They have no experience at all. So without consciousness, experience is not possible. We must admit something beyond body-mind makes experience possible. Uh, you have duplicated artificial bodies and artificial minds, no experience. Therefore, having a body-mind is not enough for experience. That is the argument. And it's, it has more force today in the age of AI and uh, robots and all that. Shankaracharya gives a sharp reply. Yadi hi dehadi sanghato rupadhyatmakaha san rupadin bijaniyat bahyapi rupad rupadayo anyonyam swam swam rupamcha bijaniyu. If this conglomeration of body and mind is able to generate experiences of smell, taste, sight, um, touch, and all that, in that case, let external objects. External 
um, objects also let them experience other external objects or and or experience themselves not possible and now we know we have, we have all these sophisticated machines still they have no experience external objects do not experience anything they do not experience anything else and they do not experience themselves also we consciousness we are able to experience ourselves and everything else also and by saying see external objects are objects body is an object what do i mean by that external objects can be seen smelled tasted touched yeah. body also can be seen smelled tasted touched and all external objects um, can be thought about spoken about the body can be thought about and spoken about body is an object it is common to all external objects similarly the mind the mind is also an object you can't smell it taste it touch it but you can experience it as as an object is an object to your consciousness just as the external world is an object to your consciousness second the world is made of the five elements space air fire water earth or periodic table whatever body is also made of the five elements it's also object mind according to vedanta sankhya is made of the five elements i will not go into the details of this in, in vedanta sara we have studied how from the five elements first the subtle universe including the mind was produced and then the physical or gross universe was produced so the mind is also made of the five elements it's an object another thing is uh, the um, changeability every object in the world changes body also changes and mind also changes so in common with the world body mind display all the characteristics of being objects what are the objects to you the consciousness one point he makes here is that um uh, is that this um Uh, you as the consciousness um you are the basis of the universe when i say the everything is an object to consciousness we must not have the false impression that objects are outside consciousness is here you know when you use light and uh, uh, object analogy so here is a book and here is light light is falling on the book and illuminating it but if you use this example this example is used in vedanta but it can be misleading because the book is different and the light is different the light is illumining the book but the book can exist without the light if switch off the light the book will continue to exist it is not dependent on the light for its own existence it depend on light for its revelation but here what he wants to say is everything is revealed by consciousness it appears to consciousness in consciousness as nothing but consciousness exactly like the best way to understand it is dream everything that you see in the dream appears to you the dreamer in you the dreamer and it is nothing other than you the you the dreamer whatever you see in your dream whoever you see in your dream whatever happens in the dream is nothing but you you are appearing you you means the dreamer's mind is appearing in those forms exactly like that in waking in dreaming deep sleep whatever happens and comes and goes is in consciousness it's not apart from consciousness if it were apart from consciousness it would not be non dual you would have consciousness plus billions of other external things 
But here, it is non-dual. Consciousness alone appearing as all of this. See, in your dreams, your mind is non-dual. In what sense? Because whatever is the content of your dream is not a second reality apart to, from external to your mind. When you count in your dreams, the dreamer's mind, then everything else is counted in that because everything appeared and disappeared in that. Similarly, when he, Vedanta is talking about consciousness, it is that underlying reality of this entire display of the universe. Also that it is problem-free. It does not age. World body ages. It does not get sick. The body can get sick. It does, consciousness does not die. The body can die. There are miseries in the drama of the world. The consciousness reveals that, but it is free of the miseries itself. Just like the movie screen is free of all the tragic tragedies uh, in the tragic movies which are shown. It's free of all the horrors in the horror movie which is shown. Nothing touches the screen. It's free of all the disasters. Similarly, awareness is you, consciousness, are free of all the troubles. Um, what about me? But then what about the world? I am free, but it's very selfish. world is suffering. But the world is nothing other than consciousness, you see. At a deep level, it is all right. At a transactional level, of course, you can help people. But at the deep level, uh, the one consciousness is perfect. And other than that, nothing else exists. So in that sense, it is all right. Um, so realizing this, one goes beyond sorrow and one does not want anything more. Think about it. Wants are there only when I am a limited creature in a vast universe. Then only want is there. I am a subject, here is the object. And I want something from this objective world. I want wealth. I want health. I want praise from people. I want fulfillment from this world. Then only this subject will feel fulfilled. But when both subject and object are appearing in one underlying reality, that underlying reality has no expectations from that. Just as um, you really, after waking up, when you consider what happened in your dream, you have no expectations of any kind of fulfillment from the dream. You have no terror from anything in the dream after you wake up. And you have no desire of any fulfillment from the dream also. You know, there's nothing that the dream can give you, which, is, which you are not already. Nothing that the dream can ever take away from you. Whatever it takes away is still within you. Yeah. So nothing is lost in a dream. Nothing is gained in a dream. Similarly, the external world cannot supply anything to you because it's not external. It's just an appearance in you. You are the unlimited. Because you are vast and unlimited, there is, uh, there is no problem whatsoever and no lack of fulfillment whatsoever from that perspective. All right. Um, this is pretty direct because we are experiencing it all the time. And because it's direct, um, a warning is necessary. Swami Bhuteshanandaji Maharaj, in his commentary on the um, Upanishads, Kathopanishad. In this verse, in this mantra, he delivers a warning. The warning is this, that yes, it's very direct. This awareness which you are feeling now, this in its real, in its essential nature is Brahman, is God, is the ultimate reality. You are that already. And everything is perfect already. But here's a warning. It says, I'll read out a little bit of the Bengali original. It will help me to translate. And of course, those who understand Bengali can understand. 
He says, the, this consciousness is not an object. It's ever available as you, the subject. Also, consciousness is the only thing that's beyond doubt. Even to doubt this would require consciousness. So it is indubitable, constantly aware, constantly available, always shining, always perfect, and it is you. But here's the catch. He warns us in the first chapter, it was said that Navirato Dushcharita, Na Shanto Na Samahita, Na Shanta Manasovapi Pragyanena Enam Apnuyat. Just by this teaching, nobody comes to enlightenment unless one refrains from uh, immoral action, from bad character. Avirato Dushcharita. Dushcharita means immoral uh, or uh, uh, bad character. Avirata stopping, pulling out of that. First, good character, then focus, serenity of mind, calmness of mind, rising above, above worldly desires and worldly pursuits. So two levels. One is dharma, which pulls us out of adharma. And then um, above that is vairagya, dispassion, which pulls us out of worldly dharma also. So there may be things which pull us in the world, sensory pleasures. And if I overstep the bounds of um, decency, of morality, of law even, in that case, that is adharma. And that kind of person, he says, even by this teaching, even by this direct teaching, it will not work. One will not become enlightened. Either one will not be attracted to this teaching or one will be attracted but will not understand this teaching or will be attracted and you understand it, but still you will feel, I've just learned a nice philosophy. It still will not take, it will, it, it will not become, it will not come alive. Not only one must rise above immorality, not only one must rise above common worldliness also, moral worldliness. So, so decency, one can be dharmic and worldly. So what is dharmic and worldly? That um, I will not do anything indecent. I will not do anything immoral. I will not do anything illegal. But what I will do is, within the limits of morality, decency, and law, I will pursue my pursuits of pleasure and power and ambition and um, you know wealth and all of that. And that's all right. That's what the, how the world functions. And without that, the world will not function. But a spiritual seeker must rise above that also. So there is a difference between a conventional moral religion and um, spirituality. But spirituality is not lower than conventional morality. It actually demands a higher standard of morality. And then only the higher focus, shantamanas focus is possible. After that, this teaching will take, uh, take hold. He says here, Je durachar theke biroto nai, Shangjoto indriyo shamahito chitta nai, Evong bhog spriha rohito nai, She prognanet darai atma ke jante paren. The one who has not desisted from immoral conduct, who has not controlled the senses, who has not focused the mind, and is not um, uh, cleansed oneself of the, the, the thirst for sense pleasures, such a person will not benefit from this teaching, will not get enlightenment through this teaching. Shutaram abar amader godar habe. Therefore, we must go back to first principles. Prothom dhab holo achar shuddhi indriyo shangjom moner akagrota. The first principle, the first step is, uh, is good conduct, 
good character and discipline of the senses and control of the mind, focus of the mind. She uh, then he says, Borobor Kotha Ucharon Kuri, Kintu J Upai Onusharon Kurle, Shotte Pochano Jai, Dushabdo Boleta Korina. I can talk talk big, but the practices which will lead me to enlightenment, they are difficult and unglamorous. Therefore, I don't do them. This is the condition. I mean, this is the state of, uh, of uh, many seekers. Kebol Shabdovid Hulam, Atmovid Hulamna. So I am a knower of words, not the knower of the self. Atma Shambhande Amon Gan Hulona, Jadara, Atmovishayak, Organe, Nisheshe, Nibrittihai. That knowledge has not arisen. So I have some knowledge. I have attended the classes. I do know certain things. But it is not that grade of knowledge which will remove ignorance about the self. That ignorance which ties me to body-mind, that will not go away. I'll still continue to behave, feel, and suffer as the body-mind in spite of listening to all this. Sri Ramakrishna is to say, um, I am Brahman, you know, teaching of Advaita Vedanta, that it is it is not good to say this. And then it's, uh, uh, Swami Bhutishanji says, Why is he telling us to uh, not say the truth? It's the truth. I am Brahman. This is what, the, what Upanishad has taught us. Why is he cautioning us against it? Pache amra kapoto takori, kothadi aporke obhibuto karar cheshta kori, Atojo Nijeder Shadun Jibone Dikane Shutrupat Shedike, Dristi Nadi, Tai Shabdhan Koredichin. He is, Sri Ramakrishna is cautioning us because so that we don't fall into the pit of hypocrisy. That uh, without coming to the first principles of spiritual practice, uh, without attending to our own spiritual practice and own purification, we, uh, we delude ourselves and others with a lot of clever talk. So that is, that's why Sri Ramakrishna is cautioning us because this is the truth. Nobody denies this. This, this. From Advaitic perspective, what has just been said by Yama is the direct truth. You are Brahman right now, unconditionally so. But. This is the final truth. Kintu shesh katha ke godai tene anle kono lab havena. But it's no good trying to make ultimate things the first thing. Begin from the ultimate things. So shouldn't we learn all this? Shouldn't we talk about all this? Korbo ebong shange shange tar godar kathati o mone rakbo ja shastroi bole dicchen na abirato duscharitat. Yes, certainly we will study all this and know all this, but always keep in mind what the text itself has warned us about. All this long preparation which took place to come to this truth. You know, Yama tells Nachiketa the importance of renunciation. Tests Nachiketa again and again. Tells him the pleasant and the good continuously are coming to you. The one who has the power to select the good and reject the pleasant, that one alone becomes enlightened. It is like walking on the razor's edge and so on. We must keep those in mind because this truth is so direct and fascinating. We tend to sort of, uh, you know, uh, ignore the initial warnings, but the initial warnings have to be taken. Initial practices have to be taken seriously. 
So now we are the Dusharitat, those who have not desisted from evil conduct, etc. That that mantra, which was which came earlier. A mantrati sharvada amadeshamne janadharathake. As important as thinking about I am Brahman and realizing I am this pure consciousness is also take that seriously too. Otherwise, we end up cheating ourselves and others. Why is it cheating? Because it won't, it won't work. If the whole goal was to take us beyond suffering, to attain blessedness and peace. Well, I'm not going beyond suffering. I'm not attending blessedness and peace. Uh, if I skip the initial stages, the unglamorous stages of and the hard stages of leading a consistently moral life. Okay. That was the uh, rather required, but maybe unwelcome warning. <laughs> now, okay, let me just look at the comments because uh, the next one is also a very powerful pointing. This pointing, by the way, this pointing is nothing other than uh, what later becomes the Drik Drishya Viveka the distinction between the seer and the seen. And the whole texts have been written about this, but the sources of such methods are from these uh, mantras of the Upanishads. The distinction between the seer and the seen. The ultimate seer is always consciousness. It never becomes an object of seeing. Everything else is an object to consciousness and all objects are within consciousness. They are not second realities apart from consciousness. All right, so that was the teaching and the warning. Let me look at the comments. Patrick says, as you discuss awareness, it is clear that it's fundamentally required for everything. What is the breakthrough that makes this the ultimate? The breakthrough is realizing I am that. First of all, realizing this is awareness. You are, you are in your understanding, isolating awareness from everything else, awareness from its objects. You see, normally we are engrossed with the objects. Um, now we're stepping back from the objects, turning around, looking at the light which is illumining the objects. So first recognize awareness and understand it for what it is. So next, the shift, the breakthrough, I am awareness. Not that I have to become awareness, not that I'm a bundle of awareness, mind and body. No, I am awareness. That awareness which makes everything possible should become a, um, an obvious fact. It is an obvious, it is a fact already, not an obvious fact at all. The Upanishad is trying to make it an obvious fact for us. Once that shift happens, then you begin to see from that perspective, there is no problem at all. You say, no, but I understand there is this awareness, what you're talking about is true, it has no problems, but I have lots of problems. But you are that awareness. If you are that awareness, what problem have you? What problem does the dreamer actually have in the midst of a dream? Even the worst nightmare, none at all. Nila, Nila Vora says, does the consciousness travel with the subtle body? Yes and no. The reflected consciousness travels with the subtle body. Pure consciousness is always there. It has no traveling, no coming and going. You see, coming and going is a sign of an object. I was telling you the difference between consciousness and all objects. Body, mind, they share the nature of objects. One of the, I told you, what are the nature of objects? All objects are, um, they are, uh, the, you know, you know them through the senses, for example. Body and no is known through the senses. All objects are made of the five elements. Body is also made of the five elements. So is the mind. All objects have the nature of coming and going. Body and mind also have the nature of coming and going. But consciousness does not come and go. Reflected consciousness, however, does come and go. Every day when we fall asleep, when the mind shuts down, 
the reflected consciousness disappears. That's why we feel unconscious. We, when we wake up, we think there's nothing in deep sleep because our only idea of consciousness is the reflected consciousness. It's like, I've forgotten that this is a real face. I'm just looking at the mirror and thinking, that's, that's the face, that's my face. And if somebody takes the mirror away, well, my face is gone. No, it isn't, but the reflection is gone. And the reflected face can travel. You move the mirror around, reflected face will move around. Um, it's like the example I gave of the sun shining in the sky and the many pots with water in them. So the pots are there, there's water in each of the pots and in each of the pots with water, there is a little, tiny reflected sun. Now the pot is the body, the water is the mind. The reflected sun, tiny reflected sun is the reflected consciousness. Pots are many, bodies are many. The water in each, each of these pots is many. Uh, in some part, the water may be cloudy. Some part, the water may be dirty. In another part, the water may be pure. Similarly, minds are many. Some are polluted. Some are restless. Some are clear. Some are calm. Uh, and the reflected suns are also many. Reflected consciousnesses are also many. But pure consciousness, the sun, the one original sun, is, is one and the same. And it is the source of all the light. It's that pure consciousness, the sun, is not at all the pot. It's not even the water. And it's not even that reflected sun there. Now, uh, when you move the pot around, the water will move with it. And the reflected sun also will move with it. But the original sun does not move with it. When the pot is cracked, the gardener may come. God may come and pour out the water into a new pot. So that water will travel from this pot to a new pot. And the reflected sun will travel with it. Similarly, after death, the subtle body leaves this broken part, the dead body, and goes to a new body. And the reflected consciousness travels with it. And if somebody has uh, near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences, you'll say, I left the body. I was witnessing my own body. I went through a tunnel of light. I had different experiences. That is the subtle body traveling and the reflected consciousness having all those experiences. But the vast field of awareness in which all this is happening, that does not travel. It does not come or go. Agamapai, that is the word in Sanskrit for coming and going. Coming and going, objects. Coming and going, body. Coming and going, mind, including ego. Coming and going, consciousness, reflected consciousness. But Atman, Brahman, no, no coming and going. It reveals and it makes possible all these comings and goings. Ashok says, are consciousness, awareness, same or different? I'm using it indifferently, in the same meaning. Um, use it in two, term, two ways. One is the common sense in which we use the word consciousness or awareness. In English, I'm conscious. Uh, I'm conscious of, of something. I take a cup of coffee and become more conscious. See, there's another thing I forgot to tell you. There's no more conscious or less conscious. When you feel more alert, that's the mind becoming more alert. A cup of coffee will do that to you. Uh, a good night's rest will do that to you. But this, if you feel less conscious, heavy and dull and sleepy, that's the mind. Consciousness, in the Advaitic sense, what, what Yama is talking about, is illumining the dull mind, is illumining the sharp mind, um, the alert mind, both ways. So I'm using consciousness and awareness in the same way. That's why some confusion can be created. Um, especially I've seen when you read that book, I, uh, I am that, 
Nisargadatta Maharaj, so there the distinction is made between consciousness and awareness. He'll say things like, with the death of the body, consciousness will disappear. You say, what happened? All Vedanta seems to say that consciousness exists even after the death of the body. But then you read one sentence more and he says, awareness is always there. What he means is, it's just using the words in two different senses. Remember, he spoke in Marathi, then it was translated into English. So these terms are, are different. Prabir Basu, consciousness cannot make a stone think or see. Human body, including mind, is also matter. What is special about bodies of sentient beings? Bodies of sentient beings are sentient. You say, yes, yes, but what does it mean? How do they become sentient? Because of the presence of subtle bodies. Subtle bodies, though made of matter, have the capacity to um, reflect, channelize, uh, utilize consciousness. So do you have a reflected consciousness? Minds become illumined by consciousness. And an illumined mind can further illumine senses. An illumined mind and senses can give you first-person experiences. You're called sentient. The physical body will also be illumined by the presence of the illumined mind and senses. But when the physical body dies, it can no longer hold on to the mind. And so that illumination is lost. There won't be any more experience there. Um, that's the difference between, say, a stone or a rock or even the most sophisticated machine, a robot or a computer. It, somehow it does not have that subtle body. So it's not a sentient being. Somebody might ask, and there's this discussion, that if you, can you construct a subtle body? The subtle body is also made of matter. So in principle, it should be possible to construct a subtle body. If you can, if you could construct a subtle body, you would have a sentient being immediately. Uh, Rodrigo says, is it correct to say that in this planet, humans are the instruments most capable to express consciousness and self-realized souls are the summit of that expression? Yes, more or less. Though in the Hindu, Buddhist, Jaina cosmology, there are beings with more developed bodies uh, and therefore more capable minds also. The subtle body has many more powers in those more developed bodies. Uh, so they might be even more powerful expressing more of the glories of consciousness than human beings. So in that sense, human beings would not be the pinnacle. However, leaving aside all such speculations, as far as we can see, and throughout human experience, what we have seen, human beings are the most capable of experiencing uh, or uh, uh, manifesting consciousness in the human mind. And among human beings, it is the spiritually enlightened ones who have uh, manifested it to the greatest possible degree. Rick says that it's understood that objects can't see other objects because they are not conscious. Only consciousness can do that. But how does it know itself? It's not an object can't step apart from itself to observe itself. Yes. So as I said, um, things cannot operate on themselves. So consciousness also should not be able to operate on itself, should not be able to reveal itself. And it does not. When you say consciousness knows itself or reveals itself, it's not in the sense of operating on itself. If it could operate on itself, it would become an object to itself. But consciousness is never an object to itself. The way consciousness knows other things, what does it know? Actually, it knows only one thing. Consciousness knows the mind. The first thing that is revealed to consciousness is the mind. And the mind now illumined by the presence of consciousness, the reflected consciousness can now know the body and the senses and through the body and the senses know an external world. However, um, consciousness itself 
is is what is called self luminous in sanskrit the word is swaprakasha it's not self objectifying it can't objectify itself so the rule in philosophy that things are cannot be reflexive that is uh, not violated but self luminosity swaprakasha is different from um, objectifying one itself so consciousness does not know itself as an as its own object but it's like uh, one example is um, light so light when you light this when switch on a light it reveals everything in the dark room everything is illumined immediately and the light itself is also illumined by itself it's not object it's not objectifying itself so there's a subtle distinction you can define illumination as revealing something which was in darkness something was in darkness light came revealed it illumined it now the light was never in darkness as long as the light is there it is always shining there's no question of darkness in in light so uh, it is not illumining itself it's not um, uh, you know removing itself from darkness and uh, and showing itself no it it's very nature is luminosity um yeah that's all that can be said that is the uniqueness but nothing else in the world has it actually even this physical light does not have luminosity because without your eyes physical light will not be revealed and if the mind is not connected to the eyes and then again the light will not be revealed and if consciousness is not illumining the mind then even this physical light will not be revealed that's why consciousness is called light of lights jyoti rajyoti it is the light of all lights it reveals all lights but my straight answer to your question is this is the unique nature of consciousness not that it reveals itself but it is uh, luminous it's um, self luminous swaprakasha if it revealed itself you would not need mind uh, in um, uh, you know uh, senses or anything like that to know that i am consciousness you could operate consciousness on consciousness no consciousness is shining forth and by its very shining nature reveals everything and thereby reveals its own self luminous nature at this point a question could be a good question could be that um, oh so the consciousness is dependent on the mind for revealing itself because it's only through the mind that the consciousness realizes i am consciousness i am atman or brahman yes and no because the mind is nothing different from consciousness it's not that there's a second entity upon which consciousness depends the mind itself is an appearance in consciousness if you we were sankhya followers of sankhya then yes consciousness would depend on nature material nature for its own self revelation rodrigo says could it be possible in the future that the subtle body could interface with a sophisticated human like machine why not the human body is a machine and more and more we are becoming a little machine machine like we have got so many artificial uh, implants and all which are being put in the um, physical body that uh, ship of theseus that uh, Uh, analogy is there you know a ship theseus sailed, uh, sailed in a ship and as the parts became old he had to replace the different parts of the ship until years later none of the original parts was there so is it the same ship or not similarly our bodies we keep on replacing parts heart and liver and bones and you know joints so maybe with sophisticated development in medical technology we might replace the brain also the spine and the nervous system everything so is it the same body anymore but there the subtle body is there you are the same person 
Bindu says, what did Nisargadatta Maharaj mean when he said to worship consciousness all the time? How can that be translated in terms of consciousness we talk about? Yes, in order to worship consciousness, you need to uh, have a representation of it, like um, the god of religion. So Shiva, Vishnu, Devi, these are all technologies to, to represent consciousness to itself. Then you can worship. Abhijit says questions about smart machines and consciousness. Since science has no definition of consciousness, hence no means to detect, measure it, engineers cannot determine whether smart objects they've created are conscious. So we cannot take their word for it. Maybe we also don't have the sensitivity to detect consciousness in machines. Is there some argument to rule out consciousness in machines with certainty? No, you cannot. If you can rule out um, subtle bodies, then there is no reflected consciousness there. Otherwise, just consciousness itself, you can't rule it out anywhere because it's there everywhere. Uh, consciousness pervades everything. Every, in fact, pervades means everything is in consciousness. In that sense, consciousness is everywhere. So if you're saying is reflected consciousness there in the machines, which would make it sentient, that depends on subtle bodies. And subtle bodies, uh, um, we can say with some certainty because subtle bodies are objective things and the engineers have not so far claimed to make a subtle body. Shilpa Tulsida says, in the deep sleep, both the mind and intellect are shut down. Correct. In the dream, mind is awake. No intellect is expressed. Um, well, the way it is said in Drigdrishya Viveka, for example, in waking, this internal organ, mind functions fully. In dream, it is partly functional. In deep sleep, it is not functional. The mind is not functional, including the intellect. So is it when both mind and intellect merge into stillness where both feels one or blank with only awareness of blankness, a clue towards self-realization and consciousness? To drop that blankness is hard even though I say it needs to be done. Basically everything in this world oscillates wave-like sound or light or matter when waves cease to be. Is that intense awareness or just consciousness or awareness? I'll just answer one of this. If you can quieten the mind down to deep serenity and quietness, then the question needs to be that deep serenity and quietness is experienced by what? It's experienced by you, the awareness. You can never objectify awareness anymore. So that quietening the mind down to absolute calmness, that is a yogic method. Rick says, what you are saying about proclaiming I am Brahman, etc. is what new Advaitins say. You are already enlightened. There is no personal self, etc. We mistake those concepts for realization. So this is a warning to the new Advaitins who also who make two mistakes sometimes. Not all of them, but two mistakes. One is at the upper end of the spectrum where they are talking about the final concepts of Brahman, awareness, realization, enlightenment and say it's all done. You are that already finished. That's um, not so fast. And another very common mistake is to completely ignore the warning that Bhuteshanji gave, the initial stages of moral practice and discipline. So those, uh, if one ignores, one does it only at one's own peril. Either there'll be no progress or there'll be very slippery kind of progress. One can cause a lot of damage to oneself and others. It's much better to be careful and conservative about uh, spirituality and enlightenment. Take it slow. You have all the time in the world. 
don't be quick to claim enlightenment. It's much better uh, to be enlightened and not claim to be enlightened than to be not enlightened and claim to be enlightened. Much better for oneself. If one is being selfish in an enlightened selfishness, one should take care of oneself first. And taking care of oneself would mean progress carefully, step carefully. After all, it's the razor's edge. Reflect and notice the Upanishad. Upanishad says, you are Brahman already. That's always done and accomplished. But it will never say you are already enlightened. That is manifestly wrong. If you're already enlightened, you wouldn't need anything at all. But we do need, we have the feeling of, of needing help and, uh, uh, you know, we need spiritual progress. So we are not enlightened, though we are Brahman. We need to be enlightened about that. Shiva Priya says, reflected consciousness along with the mind takes another body after death, depending on the mind's desire. Not on the mind, uh, not, it's not a conscious decision. It is desire plus past karma. Mukti means mind is desireless and stops taking up the next body. Yes, that's the story we are given. Really in Advaita Vedanta, Mukti means you are your very nature. Pure consciousness is, the very nature of pure consciousness is freedom. Last one, is the hard problem of consciousness really a hard problem of reflected consciousness? Hmm. Think about that. Yes, from an Advaitic perspective, that would be a hard problem of reflected consciousness, I guess. Yes, that's a good, good subject for a paper. But one last comment about freedom, uh, about mukti or freedom, and then we will stop. In one sense, all of spiritual practice is giving us freedom, a taste of our, our own freedom. Moral life, very beginning, the beginning of itself, the beginning of spiritual practice, moral life. I do not tell lies. I will be self-controlled. I do not hurt others. So all of this is freeing us from the great burden of, um, of guilt, of uh, anxiety. They say that it is a, a, a good, like a, what, what do you call it? A light conscience, which gives you a deep, good night's sleep. <laughs> Your conscience is light. External things also. It is things like giving. When you are giving your own um, accumulated wealth or giving um, your property, then um, you are freed from the burden of possessions. See, when you have, you think possession is great, but when you are holding on to possessions, we are trapped. Possessions are holding on to us. Uh, monks, for example, experience an immediate release by letting go of all things externally, just external possessions, house, property. It's a great freedom. When moral practice gives us a great freedom from the burden of, of guilt and anxiety and negativity, then um, devotional practice, my thoughts, my love, my emotions are all centered around the God of love, devotion. That frees it from worldliness. That's a, another even deeper, much more huge freedom. You're set free from a lot of nonsense. Then you go even further. Yogic practice, Patanjali yoga. Sit down and shut down even good thoughts, even divine thoughts, divine emotions. Shut it down. Step away from the mind. And that's a freedom from the mind itself. That's an even deeper freedom. Uh, unthinkable lightness and freedom. And finally, what Advaita Vedanta is talking about, our own real nature, pure consciousness. 
that's freedom itself it's always been free just like the movie screen is completely free of whatever movie is being played so this is a journey uh, which progressively reveals our own innate freedom okay on that beautiful note let's end today om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna rupa namastu